As we come now to God's word, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. This morning we're in chapter 2. That's Esther chapter 2. And as you find that, would you pray with me? Our God, as we've just sung, we ask for you now to illuminate our hearts. We know that the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding for the simple. So we need your help now. Help us to see you and to believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Esther chapter 2. I want this morning to read these first 18 verses. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, 
she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth in the second year of his reign, seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is God's word. I know that's a lot to read all at once, but, but we can handle it. Uh, it's, it's just a bit there at a time. We're reading uh, now in these coming weeks through the events of the book of Esther, and it's good for us to hear the whole thing. But, but remember now that this is a, a story. It's a true story about uh, a particular time when God saved his people from destruction and how he did that through this woman, Esther. So it's best for us to address the book as a whole, not to just chop it up in pieces. So we're using uh, themes and threads that run through the whole book instead of just preaching chapter by chapter, but we have to read through a part at a time. Last week, if you were here with us, you'll remember that, that we talked about the theme in Esther of God's invisibility, that there is not one single mention of God in the book of Esther, not by any name. He's hidden in some sense. So we talked about what it means for us to trust God even when he's invisible. God in the book of Esther is much more like a stagehand to the drama that's happening on the stage. So we're seeing Esther and Ahasuerus and Vashti and Haman and Mordecai and all these people in the front of the stage, but, but God seems to be wearing black, one of the ones that blend into the background, but but that moves the stage and is shaping the events that we're seeing unfold. That was last week. This week, we're going to focus on the theme in Esther of moral ambiguity. The theme of moral ambiguity. See what I mean by that in just a bit. But the book of Esther is viewed by some as a a, a woman's book. Now, uh, we know that uh, it's no more a woman's book than uh, the book of John or Amos or James are, are men's books. You know that all of God's word is for all of God's people. So it's not not for women, but it's not only for women. It's for, for all of us. But you can see why so many women in particular 
would appreciate the Book of Esther. I mean, there are so uh, few prominent female characters in the Bible anyway, but, it, but in this book, the central character, the one on whom everything kind of pivots, the one that God primarily uses is, is a woman. And so as this woman, Esther, matures, we see her grow by God's grace and courage and in wisdom and, and in grace and in power. And we see Esther as this hero that's a model for women everywhere. Do you feel the shoe about to drop here? I would say we have to be careful about this because this book is not quite that simple. This is not the VeggieTales version of Esther. This is real life. And so when we look at the book of Esther, when we really look, there's quite a lot of moral ambiguity happening here. Esther, by birth, has a Jewish heritage. So she's part of God's people, and as part of God's people, uh, these are a people who are treasured by God, holy, set apart, specifically unique in the sight of the nations as God's people. And that's still true for them, even though they're now in exile. So they're currently not in the promised land. They're in the foreign land of Persia in the 400s B.C., and even though they're not at home, they're still God's people, and they're still to be set apart. And when we meet this central character, Esther, when we first are introduced to her in verse 7, we hear her Hebrew name, Hadassah. But that's the only time that name for her is used. In the rest of the book, we know her as Esther, which is her Persian name. We also know that Esther is purposefully hiding her Jewish heritage. We don't know all the reasons why. We're told that, that, that some part of it is because her cousin Mordecai told her to do so. Uh, this uh, woman, Esther, also eats the food of the palace, which would have gone against Jewish food laws. She's all... Uh, dolled up, if I can say it that way, with all the cosmetics and oils and perfumes, which is not the way a Jewish woman was to pre present herself. And she's joined to a Gentile, to a non-Jew, to this Persian king, Ahasuerus, which is not what a Jew was to do. All of this is blurring holiness. Was it, was it right for Esther to do these things? Was it, was it good? So was it right for Esther to quietly here submit to the things that are happening to her? Or should she have been more like Queen Vashti in the first chapter and put her foot down and say, ah, no, I'm not doing that? And also, without being too graphic about this, we know that this was not a beauty pageant that's too cleaned up. This is not Miss Persia, where they were all kind of presented. Each of these women were brought into the king's palace, into his bedroom, one at a time. Each in the harem, there were these hundreds of women, Esther, who was just one. And you have to wonder, as he rotated through each of these women, night after night, 
What was it that Esther did in the bedroom that earned her the king's favor above all others? The author doesn't tell us. Perhaps that's a kindness to us. It's just left vague. Now, before you jump to rescue Esther and say, uh, try to fix it and, and to defend her decisions and to explain away what's happening here, notice that the author does not do that. The author does not tell us whether these things are good or not. The author does not give us a moral commentary. The author does not say, and then Esther did what was right in the Lord's eyes here. It's left ambiguous. So what are we supposed to do with this? Uh, I found a lot of help from, I, I've read many commentaries on the book of Esther just because of its complexity. Uh, the one that I think is the best by far, at least in many ways, is a commentary written by, by a female scholar of all things. Perhaps she's got particular insight because of that. Uh, her name is Karen Jobes, and I think she'll help us here. She certainly can word this better than I can. She says this about the book of Esther here. The author's silence makes it virtually impossible to use Esther's behavior as a moral role model. How would you use this episode from Esther's life to teach virtue to your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? What message would she get? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men. Use your body to advance God's kingdom. The end justifies the means. The exemplary approach fails here because the author does not intend to hold up Esther as a moral example to be followed. Esther may well have been a virtuous woman, obedient to God's law, but even if she was... The author chooses to veil her virtue in a morally ambiguous and complex situation. He does not allow us to come to simple answers when we consider Esther's life in light of Scripture. The author is skillfully describing a morally ambiguous and complex situation because that is the way real life often is in this fallen world. Isn't that true? Things are never quite as, as tidy as I'd like them to be. Answers are never quite as easy as I want them to be. So the author here is not giving us an example to follow in Esther. The author is showing us the complexity of real life lived out. And in that, you know, I, I hope it doesn't come across that I'm just picking on Esther here. She's, she's the one introduced in this chapter, but we see a similar sort of, uh, of ambiguity with Vashti. Was it right for her to refuse the king or not? We see with Mordecai, was it right for him to hide his Jewishness or not? Was it right for the Jews by the end to actually protect themselves by killing some of their enemies? It's, it's in more than just the book of Esther uh, for Rahab. You remember, as they first came into the promised land, was it right for her to lie to hide the spies of Israel? For, for Jacob, was it right to favor his son Joseph over his other 
children, was it right for David to preserve the life of King Saul? These things aren't easy for us. Scripture and life is just full of moral ambiguities. So just because we see things happen in Scripture, or because things turn out okay in the end, this does not mean that the thing itself is right or condoned by God. Just because we see it happen in Scripture doesn't necessarily mean it's right or condoned by God. And when we recognize this, this will actually help us to read the Bible well and to understand it better. So when we look at the, the patriarchs in the Old Testament who had multiple wives... The Bible doesn't say that that was right or good. It just says this is what happened. So we're forced then to wrestle with these things in the light of the law and wisdom of God. Now, let me be clear as I can here. I am not saying with all this discussion of moral ambiguity that there is no moral standard. Uh, we know this. Uh, I'm not saying that there's no right and wrong uh, th or that everything's a free-for-all for you to just choose what's right for you. If everything is good, then nothing is good. Uh, there are real injustices in the world. There are real wrongs. And as C.S. Lewis famously talked about, we cannot call a line crooked unless there is a real straight line that exists. There is a real moral standard that comes from God. We call it the law of God, which is good and perfect and re revives the soul. And then we apply the law of God to our lives by the wisdom of God, by his spirit. And it's there that we see all the complexities. Because we know that Esther's situation is very complex. Esther is taken. She, her people, had been taken from their homeland by a foreign empire. She had been taken into the harem. And then Esther was taken into the bedroom. If Esther had lived today, she'd be part of the hashtag MeToo movement. She might have been one that testified uh, to the abuse of gymnastics doctors. Similar things. If you were in Esther's situation, what would you do? What could you do? So in all of this, we're not saying that there's no morality. We are, of course, called to holiness. But we are saying that morality is, is difficult. And by God's grace, we want to work for discernment to know what is good and right in the sight of God. And when we fall short of working for that discernment, Scripture has some sharp words for us. This comes from Hebrews chapter 5. in addressing this issue of wrestling with what is good and bad. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, 
the author of Hebrews writes this, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the words of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In other words here, the author is saying maturity then is the solid food, the meat of constantly training ourselves to discern by God's word good and evil. But he's saying you have acted like children. And you can only take milk. You've become moral sloths. You've become dull in your hearing. And we can see that happening with Christians generally. I know this is uncomfortable, but I think it needs to be said. It is extremely discouraging to see Christians vigorously defend the immoral acts and attitudes of our president. This is not about political parties or other candidates, or who's better or worse, or government policies, or even news reports. Set that all aside for just a second. It is about what we see played out in our leader. And in an attempt to make an unambiguous moral hero, Christians have lost the ability to call wrongs wrong. There are far too many Christians looking at what's happening and excusing it or shrugging or giving a pass on certain behaviors because we think he is on our team. As if because he's good in these areas, then we'll just excuse all these other bad areas. We're acting like the foolish person, a sports fan who's watching his team play and who gets upset at every call that goes against his team and says, ah, the ref is blind. We've become fools in that way. Don't we want different than that? We want what the psalmist says in Psalms 119, it's the longest psalm, 119 beginning in verse 129, the psalmist says this, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as it is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I might keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 
We need the grace of God to learn this, to grow to desire this, that God's law would be kept by God's grace. We learn to love God and his ways, not only in our hearts, but in the hearts of others. So much so, we long for it so much to, that, that it physically hurts us and brings tears to us when we see disobedience. Have we lost that? Have we lost sight of good things? Have our ears become dull? So that not only do we just not weep at disobedience, sometimes we actually cheer it on. Do you know what it looks like to the watching world to see Christians stand and clap for King Ahasuerus? That look at us and think, this is a light on the hill? This is the ones that follow Jesus? This is holiness? It's no wonder that people are leaving American Christianity right and left. Because in some ways, we have lost sight of God. Whenever we put loyalty to party, loyalty to family, loyalty to country, or loyalty to anyone we perceive as our own people before our loyalty to God, we will end up with a warped morality. It will happen. And the result of that warped morality will do damage to ourselves, will do damage to those who don't believe who are watching us, and we will do damage to the very name of God. Hmm. The theme of moral ambiguity in the book of Esther shows us that we're not about giving heroes or models to follow. In fact, the person in the book of Esther, within the book itself, who is most morally unambiguous, the most clear with their morality, is the king's official Haman. We haven't met him yet. We'll meet him next week. But with, within the book itself, uh, Haman, we are told by the author that Haman is an enemy. We are told by the author that Haman is wicked. He is very clearly a villain in this book. So then, if that's the villain in this true story, where's the hero? Is it Esther? Is it Mordecai? Uh, you know, maybe, perhaps, to some degree. But we're supposed to look there for a greater hero. I'm not trying to rob all of our heroes or say that you can't admire certain people or look up to aspects of them. We need to see the example of men and women in our lives who have gone before us in all of their triumphs and troubles. We need that, but we do want to put them in perspective to hold them loosely, otherwise they become idols and take the place of God. Sometimes we think we need a hero that we can identify with. That's sometimes true, sometimes not. Uh, but if a hero is going to truly save, truly rescue, 
We need that hero to be someone more than we can just identify with. We need that hero to, to transcend. That's the reason why we make Esther better, tidy her up, try to make her transcend. It's the reason why we do the same to a lot of the people in the Bible. We do that to, to, to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to Paul and to Peter and to Mary. And, and we try to downplay their flaws and, and play up their successes so that they can be examples to us. And that's just backwards. If we do this, we'll lose sight of the fact that these are real people wrestling with real things just like you in difficult and complex situations. If we play them up too much as heroes, we may also lose sight of the real hero of Scripture, which is God himself. To see a Jesus then who actually does transcend in a way that Esther or Mordecai cannot do. When we look at the life of Esther, and we should, in many ways she's a treasure and a gift to us, we're actually seeing the work of God through her. Uh, Paul makes this comment very briefly, one verse. We're almost done here. I know we're hungry. Uh, we're, We're right in the end. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, single verse here. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When we look at Esther and Mordecai and the others, we're seeing jars of clay. And there's no shame in that. That's true. But it's a reminder that any power we see in them is actually from God and not from them. Any power we see in our own lives is from God and not from us. When we know that is true, it actually frees us up to live in some of the moral ambiguities and not have to tidy everything up with a nice pretty bow. This will draw us to actually seek God and his ways to wrestle with the things that he would say is true or honoring to him. It will draw us to to apply to our own hearts and lives by the wisdom of the Spirit, God's truth. And it will draw us to trust God as the true hero. I'll give the last word here uh, to Karen Jobes again as we hear from her just because she was flooded with wisdom. As she says these words, this episode from Esther's life offers great encouragement and comfort when we find ourselves in situations where every choice is an odd mix of right and wrong. Only God knows the end of our story from its beginning. We are responsible to him for living faithfully in obedience to his word in every situation as best we know how. But even if we make the, quote, wrong decision, whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is so gracious and omnipotent that he is able to use that weak link in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes in us and through us. Esther may have looked back on this episode of her life with shame and regret, 
Or she may have looked back on it with a clear conscience, knowing that she acted as wisely as she knew how at the time. In either case, every one of us also has both kinds of episodes in our own lives. Esther's story shows that we can entrust them to the Lord and move on. Would you pray with me? Our God, would you help us to be sensitive followers of your word by your grace? Would you give us wisdom as we seek to honor you, to obey you, and to trust you? Would you be our hero forever? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.